0: Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today who sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the streets and in the hills, we shall never surrender. Mark Antony rallying Roman citizens after the assassination of Julius Caesar. King Henry V before the Battle of Agincourt inspiring his troops to defend England's future. Winston Churchill during World War II after the British Expeditionary Force had to retreat from Dunkirk encouraging the people to not give up. These are three of the most famous Speeches from kings or rulers that were given to stir the subjects of that kingdom to action. And this morning and throughout the summer, we're going to study a speech. It's a speech from a king about his kingdom and what the subjects of that kingdom are called to. It's far more well known. It's of greater impact and significance than, than those three or Any other speech ever delivered in human history. This summer at Grace, we're going to study over nine weeks together the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus' most famous sermon. It's the longest section of teaching that we have from Jesus in the scriptures. And and as we we go through this, you may hear and and you may read and you may recognize many of the things. Uh, You are the light of the world. Turn the other cheek. Our Father who art in heaven, uh, judge not lest you be judged, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so I'm so excited for us as a church these next few months to study Jesus' words and and dive in and gain a better understanding of these things that maybe we've we've heard so many times that they become kind of rote. Let's see what is Jesus telling us about what life is like, and more importantly, what he is like. You can find the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. As we study together this summer, I want to encourage you to not just make this a Sunday morning only kind of thing. Spend time during the week in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Make this your uh, summer of the Sermon on the Mount, so maybe you'll, you'll read through it multiple times uh, using a different translation each week, or, or you really focus in on one or, or two of these passages, or, or you just camp out in one verse and you dwell on it and you meditate it, on it. Maybe you and some friends or you and your life group, you decide and you, you commit to, hey, let's memorize the introduction, the Beatitudes, Or let's memorize all of chapter 5, or or, hey, you have all summer, let's memorize the Sermon on the Mount. Immerse yourself in the words of Jesus and ask him to teach you. This morning, we'll start in Matthew chapter 5, and you can go ahead and open your Bibles and join me there. Would you also please uh, join me in standing, and let's read the passage out loud together. We'll put it up on the screens so we can all read from the same translation. This is Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Please be seated. Today, in our teaching time, we're going to explore three things. First, we're going to look at Jesus the King. Then, we're going to study what he has to tell us about his kingdom. And then finally, we'll close by examining our posture toward and, and how we relate to our King. The King, his kingdom, and our posture. So first, we need to recognize that Jesus is the king. When Mary, Jesus' mother, was told that she would give birth to the Messiah, the angel told her, the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Throne, reign, kingdom. Before his birth, Jesus is announced as a king. And then in the Gospel of Matthew, each chapter leading up to the Sermon on the Mount is clearly depicting Jesus as a king. Chapter 1 starts with a genealogy. It's, it's the family tree, it's the ancestry of Jesus. And Matthew 1 tells us that Jesus is of the line, he's of this royal lineage from David the King. Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus is born, the wise men, they're, they're searching for him. And do you remember what they ask. They say, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? In chapter 3, Jesus's cousin, a guy named John, he's baptizing people, and this is his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Prepare the way for the king. And so from the start, before Jesus truly arrives on the scene in the gospel of Matthew, the stage is set, and he's been identified as the king. In Matthew chapter 4, this is one chapter now before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins his ministry, and we're told that he began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The gospel of Matthew uses this word kingdom 54 times. In the entire Bible, the phrase kingdom of heaven is used 34 times. 32 of them are in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew calls Jesus the Christ 16 times. That's a royal title. It means uh, the Messiah or the anointed one. Anointing being what you would do to the king. And so the point is this. The central message of the gospels, particularly the gospel of Matthew, is that Jesus Christ is the king and he is bringing, he's inaugurating, he's initiating the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 4, Jesus is healing people, he's purging demons from people, he's preaching in the synagogues and wherever he goes, there's this following, there are crowds gathering to see and hear and experience him. In the final verse of Matthew chapter 4, We're told that great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from even beyond the Jordan. So that's the context for this sermon that Jesus is about to preach. He's well-known now. He's accomplished these incredible, miraculous things, and he has a following. And in Matthew chapter 5, we're told that seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Jesus hikes up the side of a mountain, he sits down, and he starts teaching. But notice who he's speaking to. It's his disciples. The crowds, this, this mass of people that have interacted with him, or, or they've heard about him, or they just want to see him, they're there too, but it's when his disciples come to him, that he opens his mouth and he begins to teach. So the audience here is is probably two concentric circles. There's this inner circle of the disciples. They're gathered around Jesus' feet. And then there's this outer ring of the crowd. And they're listening too. They're they're hearing what he's saying. In fact, at the end of the sermon, Matthew chapter 7, we're told that when Jesus finished these sayings, when he finished his sermon, the crowds were astonished at his teaching he was teaching them as one who had authority, not like their scribes. The Sermon on the Mount is different than any other speech or any other sermon because Jesus is different than any other king. But let's pause for just a second and ask, what does it mean that this sermon was primarily addressed to his disciples? Because it's clear right here in the text, there's this distinction between the crowd and the disciples. The crowd gathers to listen. The disciples are there to learn. The crowds want to know what Jesus has to say. The disciples, they just want to know Jesus. The crowd eventually goes home. The disciples leave everything to follow the king. And so from the start, before we even hear a word from Jesus' sermon, we have to consider are we part of the crowd or are we disciples following our king? Because if we're just part of the crowd, then the Sermon on the Mount, we we can just pick and and choose the the parts that appeal to us or that we like to hear or that coincide with our pre-existing theology. We can can select the parts that affirm our traditions or our political beliefs or our way of living. If we're just part of the crowd, we can listen to Jesus' words and we can say, man, nice sermon. It was beautiful, beautiful words, so inspiring. And then we can walk out that door and we can go on living exactly as we were. But if you and I are disciples, if Jesus is our king then the words of the Sermon on the Mount are a royal decree, and they're not so much for us to be inspired by as they are a pronouncement for how we ought to live. Because if Jesus is king, then what he says has absolute authority in and over our lives. The theologian N.T. Wright says this, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what grief is, look at Jesus. And go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but you're actually part of the drama which has him as the king, the central character. Members of the crowd live as the main character in their own lives. If you're a disciple, you have and you serve a king. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus the King gives us a vision of what the kingdom of God looks like. This sermon gives us a perspective of his kingdom. So, with that background, let's turn now to the introduction, these introductory words of Jesus' sermon. Sermon on the Mount begins with these eight incredible verses that have been uh, labeled or dubbed the Beatitudes, And and they're called that because each one of these verses begins with this common refrain, blessed are. And that's what beatitude means. It's it's Latin for blessed. Because these eight statements tell us who is considered blessed in God's kingdom. So if you're looking at them in your Bible or on on the screens, you can see that these verses are a single unit. And when you look at the first and the last, you'll notice this promise Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus opens and he closes with this identical promise of the kingdom of heaven. Now, the other six Beatitudes sandwiched between these two, they're all different as far as as what's being promised. And they're different because they tell us what kind of kingdom Jesus rules over and, and what that kingdom's like. It's a kingdom where those who mourn shall be comforted. The meek shall inherit the earth. Hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied. The merciful shall receive mercy. The pure in heart shall see God. Peacemakers shall be called children of God. The Beatitudes are promises. They're promises about what life in the kingdom of God is supposed to and what it will one day look like. Now, we we won't do an in-depth evaluation or study of of each of these statements, but as a a brief overview, here's what the kingdom of God is like. It's a place full of people who are poor spiritually, who have nothing to offer God. It's a kingdom filled with people who mourn deeply the, the brokenness in this world. And, and even though they experience this deep grief over things that, that just aren't meant to be, those in the kingdom find true comfort. Jesus' kingdom isn't crowded with warriors who fight his enemies on the beaches and on the landing grounds or, or take the world by force. It's a kingdom of the meek and the humble. And their inheritance is the entire earth. It's a kingdom where the people in it have hungered and thirsted for righteousness. It it takes a while before you become hungry. You have to wait some time and go for quite some time without water before you become thirsty. I love this verse, hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's describing a people who have longed for it. It reminds me of Greek mythology and the story of uh, Tantalus, who was cursed, he was condemned to spend all of eternity in this pool of water with a, a branch full of grapes just over his head. And every time he would reach up and, and try to pick a grape to eat it, the branch would, would lift just slightly so it was out of his grasp. Every time he tried to scoop the water or bend down to drink it, it would recede back into the ground. And so Tantalus was there for all eternity starving and yearning and thirsting and he was unable to satisfy those needs. But Jesus says, not in my kingdom. Not in my kingdom. It's not like that. My kingdom is a place where this, this desire, this, this thirst for justice, this hunger for righteousness, it's met, it's satisfied, it's filled. It's a kingdom defined by mercy, where mercy and forgiveness are freely given and freely received. And the people living there are are pure in heart. And so they see God, they they get to be in his presence, they experience life with him. It's a kingdom full of people who pursue peace in their lives and their relationships in the world. And because they're peacemakers, they're called children of the king And the people there are so committed to righteousness that they're willing to stand up to anything. They're willing to be persecuted for it. Jesus promises us his kingdom and he says, this is what it will be. It's a striking picture, isn't it? If there is a happily ever after paragraph in the Bible, this is it. And it's so different than the world that we live in and what we experience in our day to day. Because the kingdom of heaven is different than any other kingdom. Because Jesus is different than any other king. And if we study Jesus' words, we see that his kingdom is both here and now, but it's also there and then. It's present and it's future. The promise of the first and the last Beatitudes. They're set in the present. The disciples, those who belong to the king, are assured that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is telling us that in some very real and tangible ways, the kingdom of heaven is here with us now. He doesn't say theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. He says theirs is right now. But we also know, don't we, that when we look at the world around us, that this is all a future kingdom. The world is not as it should be, but one day it will be. If you notice those six middle statements, they're all future promises. They're things that will happen. They shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied, and so on. And so that's not to say that Jesus doesn't bring those things to us here and now in some specific ways, It's also not to say that those things will only happen in the future, but it tells us that the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven to earth so that we could enjoy glimpses and tastes of it here, but the full experience of kingdom life will have to wait for the age to come. The Beatitudes are promises from the king to those in his kingdom. And so when we read the Beatitudes, let's not turn them into some sort of list and, and ignore the central message. That's one of the dangers. Anytime there's anything resembling a list in the Bible, we become almost pharisaical about, okay, what do we have to do? What do I have to do? And we become religious about a list and we make it a, a bunch of boxes that we just have to check to please God. That's not what Jesus is trying to accomplish By telling us about his kingdom. And so let's not be myopic about the trees, and let's not become so focused on them that we lose sight of the forest, and more importantly, the castle that's rising up out of the forest. The Beatitudes are a vision of the kingdom that we are invited into, to be a part of today and forever. Because if we're followers of Jesus, he's our king. And he tells us what life is like with him in the kingdom. And from the very beginning of this sermon, he tells us how to be a part of the kingdom. He tells us what our posture has to be to enter the kingdom of God. It's the very first statement in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This first verse is the key to understanding all of the Beatitudes in the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's key to understanding the gospel because if you understand this, everything else falls into place. Poor in spirit, that's how we enter the kingdom. And, and listen, Jesus isn't talking about money. Elsewhere in the gospels, he will say, yes, being financially poor actually makes it somewhat easier to be spiritually poor. This, this doesn't mean Jesus is unconcerned about the poor throughout the Bible. God communicates his love for and heart toward those who have serious financial need. But when Jesus says poor in spirit here, he means spiritually. In the original Greek uh, that the Gospel of Matthew was written in, there are two different words for poor. And the first refers to financial poverty. It, it, it describes somebody who works in the fields doing physical labor. That's not the word that Jesus uses. The word that Jesus uses is this Greek word, patakos. Patakos. It's kind of fun to say. Will you say that with me? Say it on three. One, two, three. Patakos. Yeah. Did you spit a little bit when you said it? Hopefully not on the person next to you. That's part of the connotation of patakos, It means poor, but it's a poverty of identity. It's somebody who is destitute, despised even, so lowly that you could spit on them. That's the word that Jesus uses because Jesus is speaking of spiritual poverty. Author Max Lucado, he describes being poor in spirit as looking at yourself like a beggar in God's kingdom. It means understanding our lack of anything remotely good in God's sight. Complete unworthiness before our king. That's the first sentence in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins with that statement. It might be the most difficult thing that he says. Because if, if we're honest with ourselves, we, we don't like to or we don't want to think that we're poor in spirit. We're probably not arrogant enough to say that we're rich in spirit, but, but poor? I mean, nothing to offer God, not a single good like, molecule in our being? Oh, come on, really? Most of us prefer to think that we're middle class in spirit. Like, eh, we're kind of right in the middle. Here is why this is the posture for entry into the kingdom of heaven. Because unless you're poor in spirit, you don't need the king. Unless you are in abject spiritual poverty, if you are not impoverished, then you don't desperately need Jesus. You can get by on your own, and you can just enjoy him or tolerate him. And those are two of the most dangerous postures that you can have toward the king of the universe. If you're convinced of your own righteousness, you have no need for the righteousness of God. If you're certain of how merciful you are, then you expect mercy in return. You've earned it. If you've never mourned your sin and your brokenness, what need is there to be comforted? Most of us, we spend our whole lives trying to be anything but poor, financially, relationally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, we want to feel like we're self-sufficient, like we have things under control because we're not just Americans, we're, we're Texans, right? Only two things that can hold us back are broken air conditioners in July and like an inch of snow in February. That's it. <laughs> self-sufficiency. Pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. It's championed as a virtue, but spiritual self-sufficiency, it doesn't help us grow closer to God. It's actually the thing that keeps us far from him outside the walls of his kingdom because if you show up with your hands full how can you possibly receive the gift of grace that Jesus is trying to offer poor in spirit is the posture of those in the kingdom because you show up like the orphan Oliver saying please may I have some more I've got nothing on my own please you're the only one who can help me or save me. That's the only way. That's the only way into the kingdom of God because Jesus the king only fills empty hands. Life in the kingdom begins by being poor in spirit, empty-handed, nothing to offer. I had a conversation uh, with a good friend from college a few years ago. And He was in this process of deconstructing his faith, or as R.E.M. sang about in the 80s, he was losing his religion. And He was asking me, how could I still seriously believe in Jesus? How could I really truly believe in heaven? He told me that he, he felt like heaven was just this postponed wish fulfillment. It, it was a future hope for people who didn't have a good enough life here on earth to be happy with their finite existence. Again, we were friends, and so he was able to be honest with me, and he told me that he thought following Jesus just, it was a crutch. It was a crutch to get through an unfulfilled life. Really delightful interaction, right? Have you ever heard this argument before? This thought that, that Christianity is, is just a crutch? Have you ever wondered why that's considered a valid criticism? Of Christian faith. I think that critics of of faith who see Christianity as a crutch, they they mean that it's only good for people who can't stand on their own two feet because you need a crutch or crutches to to help you. And and most of us in this world, we don't like to see ourselves this way as as needing help, not not all the time. And so calling Jesus a crutch, it's meant to be offensive to our sense of self-sufficiency. But in my conversation with this friend, I I surprised him because I said, I agree. Well, I I said, you're you're close. You're actually not going far enough. Because believing in Jesus, it's it's way more than a crutch. If I'm on crutches, I'm still getting along mostly under my own power. It's just a foot or a a leg that's hurt. I believe I can't do anything on my own. Not a thing. Believing in Jesus isn't a crutch. It's, it's more like a full on heart transplant for a terminal patient. I told him, You're right. I cannot do this on my own. I can't do anything on my own. Life doesn't make sense without Jesus. He's not a crutch, He's everything. He's my King. This is how the kingdom of heaven works. The only way we can enter inside is if we're poor in spirit. And listen, please hear me. Please hear me on this. That is the posture of the kingdom because it's the posture of the king. Poor in spirit is the posture of the kingdom because it was first the posture of our king. The Bible tells us that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is king to the glory of God the Father. Jesus spoke the Beatitudes and then he lived out the Beatitudes for us. How are you and I able to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Because Jesus humbled himself and he became poor in spirit for us. How is it that we're comforted by God? Because Jesus mourned and he wept and he suffered and he died alone. How can sinners like you and and me inherit the earth? Because Jesus became meek For our sake, he was stripped of everything. How is our hunger and our thirst for righteousness satisfied and and filled? Because Jesus on the cross cried out, I thirst. And on the cross, he secured our righteousness. Why does God show us mercy and give us grace? Because Jesus received none. Not from Pilate, not from the crowd, not from the soldiers, not even from his father. How can a human being see God? Because Jesus, who was absolutely pure, on the cross, he gave up seeing God. He asked, Father, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? Why does God call us his children? Because he gave his one true son to die for us so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters. How could we ever possibly hope to enter into the kingdom of heaven? Because Jesus was persecuted and crucified even though he was completely righteous and he died for us. When you're able to see the king being poor in spirit for you, you can drop all pretense and pride and self righteousness, and you can show up empty handed and say, I've got nothing to offer. I've got nothing. And when you're poor in spirit, the king looks at you and says, Welcome home. Welcome to my kingdom. Would you please pray with me? Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe. Father, help us to remember, to reflect on this truth that you are our King. God, we pray that as we spend time in your word, God, today and and this week and and throughout the summer as we study this, this sermon, God, the words would be new to us, that, that the blinders that, that maybe we've, we've read them with before would, would fall off, God, that you would teach us through your word, that you would call us to the lives that you've desired that we live, God, that we would be a, a kingdom people living as your children here on earth, patiently waiting and expecting our future hope, Father, I pray that you would be with us this week, God, that you would guide us, that you would lead us, help us to follow you as your disciples and lean on you for everything in this world. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.